0: Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast, the podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, and particularly the bit in between, with your host, Barry Kirby. And welcome to this episode of 1202, the Human
1: Factors Podcast, with me, yes, Barry Kirby. I don't know about you at the moment, but as we go through COVID and the whole working from home and everything like that, I spend quite a lot of time feeling tired, and how to balance my day with the um, with, with with working and home life and everything. Every, nothing seems to have been got into. It's 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 old routine. So one of the things I've been really interested in is is the the impact of fatigue in in projects in um, in using uh, and dealing with equipment. And so I'm really delighted to be able to be joined today by uh, Sarah Booth, who's going to talk to us today about uh, fatigue risk management. So welcome, Sarah.
2: Hi, Barry. Thanks for having me.
1: No problem. So. As we we said, we're going to be talking about fatigue risk management, and you are um, a senior manager within Bain Simmons looking at fatigue risk management. What does it actually mean?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Uh, So fatigue risk management as a whole is basically, as you just said, it is making sure that people aren't too tired to do the job that they need to do uh, safely so what we do um, as a group of consultants within Simmons is we work with primarily safety critical organizations that might be airlines it might be oil and gas it might be road transport Um, the list is pretty endless (laughs) um, to help make sure that their people are sleeping at times a day they should be sleeping awake at times a day they should be awake and scheduled to really support that and the fact that they are well awake when they should be should be basically. Um, so, yeah, sounds simple, but there's a bit of work involved behind the scenes.
1: I was going to say I, I, we need to dig into this quite a lot, I think. Um, but before mm. we get into that, let's learn a bit more about you. So, fatigue risk management is quite niche. How did you? How did you get there?
2: Oh yeah, so niche. Um, you may or may not believe me, it's, it was an accident. So. Oh, no, to be honest with I you, did, with,
1: with human yeah. factors as a whole, I, I absolutely believe you. We all seem to have fallen into these things by accident one way or another.
2: Yeah, you just come across them. So I did a uh, master's degree in space physiology and health um, oh, about 10 years ago now at King's College London. And one of the lectures, which I still remember, uh, that was done by Barbara Stone and Karen Robertson, who were both at Kinetic at the time, was all about sleep and fatigue. And at the time, it was just one lecture of many. You get to the end of the year um, and do your exams, all that stuff. And then looking for a job... A job that um, I guess I'm still at the same place um, came up, graduate entry level position, fatigue risk management. And I thought, oh, hang on a minute, that was mentioned six months ago in a lecture. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, one thing led to another gra- graduate entry level position. And eight years later, I'm now, yeah, senior manager um, of what was Clotwork Research. We're now Ben Simmons because we were acquired by the group of companies about four years ago now.
1: Oh, fantastic! So, really, you you, you really va- um, got something off hearing somebody talk passionately about what they do mm-hmm. on a day to day basis, and were just basically inspired.
2: Yeah, uh, basically. And I mean, it kind of makes sense looking back because I've always struggled with sleep and had insomnia and stuff. So the join joining up of hearing about an a lecture and then the job being available, but also thinking, oh yeah, this will be as someone with insomnia. <laughs> it's a great job for me
1: there's so many people in, in sort of the, the entire human factors world who I think fall into this this type of thing one of the best web designers I know is um, is actually legally blind um it's we, we, we seem to focus on maybe the um, the things that we want to fix as much as anything else
2: yeah. yeah I think so it's and it helps you sympathize I think with your end users um, yeah. if you understand some of the troubles they're going through
1: so through the last, through the last um 18 months or so, we've obviously had this um, COVID thing. I don't know if you noticed. Um,
2: Once or twice.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, presumably you you had to hit the whole working from home piece. Um, how, how's that effect you been able to de- deliver on the day job?
2: So it's been, yeah, weird. I'm sure everyone sympathises with that. Um, so from a work side, we were really busy last year so one of the things that we help um operators with is how to make sure that things are done safely if they have to operate slightly strangely so early on when there was all of the repatriation flights and the ppe flights and um airlines couldn't put crew into a hotel in the far east um they were having to do like put 10 pilots on fly out to China, load it with PPE, and fly straight back. Um, So we did quite a lot of help for operators navigating that and making sure that those crew would have enough rest um, to be able to operate those flights safely. So we were pretty busy um, from a business perspective. Um, From a getting used to working like that perspective, yeah, interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Once I got my routine sorted. Yeah. Everything was fine. I'm now – I'm actually in the office today, which is very strange. It's the second time I've been here in 18 months. Wow, okay. um, Yeah, so working from home now is just the complete normal. I've got all my setup and everything. But I'd say the first month, getting into that new routine and working out what's work and what's not work and separating that time off from the day was – Yeah, a challenge. Uh, A couple of minor meltdowns, but (laughs) yeah, we're still here. I think everyone (laughs) went through the same thing. Um, And yeah, great big experiment in everyone work from home.
1: It certainly has, um, I guess, pushed pushed up a a load of topics, not only your, I guess, your physical working environment, um, you know, simple things like desks, monitors, how do I get all of that, all of that gear, but also... Being able to split out—I mean, I certainly know myself struggling the with the um, that the split between work, work and home—and um, I kept on itching, wanting to pick up the laptop, wanting because I'm like, oh, I'm at home, I, I'm, but I can see my desk, so I might as well just go and continue doing a bit of that. And I think it took a, a few stern words to um, to get me to stop doing that and to actually move the office out of the living room, into um, yeah, to make it harder. But um, yeah,
2: um, and something that. I mean, I'm lucky I have space in my, not a very big London flat, it's a London flat, but um, where I can kind of put the data to, to rest at the end of the day. But for people I know in the last year who's, their office is their bedroom, because that's the only place they have. Yeah. And the link that that has, that now this room that your brain should completely associate with sleep is your workplace. The amount of havoc that causes to people trying to get to sleep at night as well has been. You know,
1: yes. That, we still know people working off ironing boards as well. So I, I feel myself now feel very privileged for, to be working the way I am. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think before we um, dive back into um, into the into the risk, risk topic, we'll just take a, a quick break and then um, and then we'll come right back into it.
0: You are listening to Twelve O Two, the Human Factors Podcast. We wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your support. You can help further by rating us through your podcast provider, sharing us through social media, and telling your friends and colleagues. Let's work together in raising awareness of the value and putting users at the center of what we do. Cool. So
1: to talk more about risk management then... um, as you alluded to um, at the beginning, you um, you yourself are a bit of an insomniac, and I'm going through a thing at the moment where I'm kind of struggling to, um, or have been struggling to do the whole weight loss thing. And the um, my uh, my trainer basically turned around and said, the first thing you need to do is get your sleep sorted out. You need to be able to sleep more, and you need to um, have better quality sleep. And I've got to admit, I really struggled with that right at the beginning because, I mean. I've never slept for long. I've never slept, um, I would say, deeply in the grand scheme of things. Um and but it, it's also something like you couldn't pick up a book and learn how to do it or or anything like that. So where do you start? How do you how do you even work out what it is you need to do?
2: Yeah, so it's I know a lot of people do struggle with it. Some people who I'm terribly envious of uh, just go to bed, put their head on the pillow and they're out like a light. They sleep through or whatever time they want to wake up in the morning and they jump out of bed, energized, ready for the day. Um, so there's those people who, if you're one of them, great, but yeah. I don't entirely like you. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's my wife and I, I'm else. extremely jealous of her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, for everyone else, I think a lot of it comes back to the routines that we do, do during the day. So, it's recommended that adults over the age of 25 to the age of about 64, 65, uh, we should be getting somewhere between seven and nine hours sleep.
1: Uh, every day. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay.
2: Some people manage, others not so much. Um, so the first thing is about making sure you've got the right amount of time available to sleep for people who struggle it can be basically going back to basics make sure that time is scheduled it's important uh, just like a meeting is important just like a workout is important just like having time to eat a meal spend time with your friends and family are important sleep shouldn't be constrained by all of those things so we need to treat it just as kind of equal and importantly so making sure we have that time we can be in bed for long enough that we can get in sleep, But we don't wanna go too far and spend too much time in bed because lying in bed awake waiting to fall asleep is a problem. It starts as associating being in bed with being kind of stressed about not falling asleep. So for people who have insomnia, one of the frontline treatments is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And there's lots of different components to it. It's done by qualified practitioners but one of the um, key things that they'll do quite early on is restrict how long you're in bed for to make sure that basically that entire time in bed, is like the people I mentioned earlier on who sleep really well? You're in bed, you're asleep for 85, 90, 95% of the time that you're in bed and then once you hit that, they'll let you be in bed a bit longer and then let you be in bed a bit longer until you reach the amount of time you need to be to get all the sleep you need. Okay. Um, so that's kind of the number one thing with um getting enough sleep is making sure you're giving yourself the opportunity and then we can think about the environment so your bedroom should be dark the darkest you can possibly make it um blackout blinds getting rid of any little electronic lights um, and all of those things it should be quiet um Difficult. I live next door to a supermarket, which has uh, a delivery every morning at six am. So
1: you're getting up at six am. Completely <laughs> <the> environment. Yeah, <laughs>
2: but I have earplugs, so we can get rid of the noise from that. um Temperature-wise, there's a lot that is talk, spoken about, kind of room temperature, and it should be between this temperature and this temperature. Oh. I can't remember what the numbers are, um, but it should be comfortable. Cool enough that you're not feeling too hot, but also not too cold that so you're feeling cold. If you're someone who likes a big, thick duvet, you probably need the room a bit cooler than somebody who just likes a light blanket, all of those things. Okay. So yeah. Temperature, and yet just comfortable. If you've got an uncomfy mattress, uncomfy pillows, you're not going to sleep well. Um, we spend, in theory, a third of our lives asleep, so we oh. should be investing in things that make us feel comfortable when we're in bed, so uh they're kind of the main things beyond that what are we doing during the day are we getting outside light exercise um will help set up our body clock exercise people who have a regular routine of exercise tend to sleep better sleep is also good for sporting performance so you get a two-way flow there which is um beneficial on both sides um are you drinking caffeine late in the day before you're trying to go to bed generally sticks around for five to six hours um in your bloodstream so be that um person who tells you you don't have to have caffeine after lunch i'd recommend not doing it um i don't drink coffee so because i don't like it not for any kind of other reasons but yeah i am that annoying person who says hmm Maybe go decaf.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. But, but um, yeah,
2: there are so many things we can do uh, to address sleep. But keeping it simple, thinking about the time, the environment, and the basic little things that you do during the day um, is usually where I would start for most people.
1: So. If you've got, if you're thinking about that basic routine, then and and you get that in play, you're obviously then looking at this from a from a business perspective. And uh, like say, we you talk about fatigue risk management. How do you do risk management around fatigue?
2: Yeah, so it, it falls into kind of two main areas. So the risk management is all about uh, making sure that there isn't a elevated risk as a risk to the business or an individual as a result of someone's fatigue level so this comes back to a joint responsibility so the company is responsible for making sure that um say the working pattern isn't horribly fatiguing that there's enough breaks during the working day and also between working days for people to get rest and get away from the workspace so get sleep between two consecutive shifts and then the individual is responsible for using their time appropriately, um, getting their rest, getting their sleep and reporting if there is anything that is stopping them from getting their rest or that they think, hang on a minute, you're scheduling this. I'm, it's perfectly legal to schedule this, but actually as a working pattern, that's not great in reality. So the individual telling the company that so that the company can take a look and say, yeah, you know what, you're right. Um, Maybe we do need to change how we schedule. Um, So it kind of comes back to that. And then we'll work with organizations um, looking at working patterns, for example. Um, So think of a a large airline that we worked with a couple of years ago in uh, the US who do a lot of short kind of medium ball flying. So their longest flights would be four or five hours or so, but they had a lot that were 20, 30 minutes. Um, So everything in that range. And what they found was in the US, obviously quite a big space um, (laughs) and operating across four time zones in the, the mainland US um, if they had people who lived and spent most of the time on the west coast working on the east coast they could have taken the really early morning flights out, quite often they did because that's just the way that the schedules worked that right. um, someone from um, LA would be in New York and they need to get them back to LA so they'd take their 5am New York departure but For someone who lives in L.A., that 5 a.m. departure is 2 a.m., 1 a.m. for their body clock. Um, If I can work out time zones in my head. Um, (laughs) And then obviously you've got to show up for the flight an hour at least beforehand um, as a flight crew to check in, get prepared, uh, do your briefings. So for them, it was so much earlier than it was for the local East Coast guys. So what that was about was having the conversation With the airline to say, have you got East Coast people who can do these flights? Maybe the West Coast guys can take the 10am departure instead. And turns out, with a little bit of shuffling by the really clever guys in the scheduling team, um, they could change these things around. It costs them nothing, just a little bit of thought with the scheduling and reduce their fatigue overall of their people massively.
1: So how does that work then? Because obviously... With a lot of organisations, um, you have to, have, you almost have that principle of, um, you know, almost a macho thing, isn't there? Saying, yeah, I, mm. I, I, could do this, and um, uh, we, I work a lot with the military, and you see, you see, this quite a lot of the, the, nothing is the ability to turn around and say, look, I think we could do this. A, a, better way is um is not the same as um basically being given the order and saying, yes of course I'll do that, crack on. So how do you have how do you have them conversations? How do you even get around to that point of um suggesting it and getting people to be I guess open and honest with you about it rather than just try and battle through because that's what we do?
2: Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean the number of conversations, and I think the attitude is going away now a bit in the that whole sleep is for the week, you can sleep when you're dead, all of those kind of comments that used to be around a lot more kind of 10 years or so ago. But it is still difficult because particularly in, yeah, as you say, there's quite historically macho um, environments where it is potentially emitting a sign of weakness. Um, or thought of as that, but the way we try and have these conversations is around, um, actually, it is really difficult to make these calls sometimes because it might be that you are putting in a report um, or answering a survey question to say, yeah, this, this particular flight or this particular duty or this particular working pattern is hard for me from a fatigue perspective. That's a bit easier, but the really difficult calls are the I am a pilot. I've got a plane full of people behind me and actually I'm not safe to take this flight. Yeah. I'm going to have to say, sorry, we're going to need to find a new crew member and making that call. That is really hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what it's at the end of the day. It's not, Oh, I'm a bit tired. It's I am not safe to do uh, this. I am not putting these people at risk. And um, um, so yeah, that, that is the call at the end of the day. And, it takes guts to make that call.
1: I was going to say because I can imagine. So the difference between, um, without trying to, I guess, name any airlines, a, say a small budget airline, um, is the difference between a large airline who, I guess, invests and, and does all that sort of stuff. You've um, got to, you've got to have a really good understanding or real confidence in your organisation that you can make that call, um, and that's going to be quite difficult. Which I guess. Leads you into that thing of who, who, whom, whose responsibility is it to manage your own fatigue? Because um, if I'm tired, you know, if you turn around to me and say, "Right, I, you need to go sleeping now," um, in order to be up by then, I know I'm just going to lie there and go, "Well, I'm, I've got to be up in three hours, two hours, one hour, and that type of thing." So, whose yeah. responsibility is it?
2: Well, yeah, it's joint, isn't it? Right. Mm. So on the day or the night before um you are the only person who can sleep um, no one can make you sleep but also if you're working a pattern where you have to be up and around at five in the morning uh, for those early flights then we know scientifically biologically that it is really difficult for people to fall asleep at eight nine in the evening because we have a little peak in alertness um, due to our body clock in the, usually about two two and a half hours before a normal bedtime. Okay. So trying to go to sleep a couple of hours earlier than we normally do, it's really hard, especially on that first day. So, you won't be getting as much sleep on that night. Most people manage to get enough um, no. to get them through the day, and then maybe you're working another duty the next day. So you're a bit tired. That can help you to fall asleep a little bit earlier than you normally would on the second night, but these build up across maybe three, maybe four duties. If we're talking about airlines and pilots and cabin crew in Europe, you could work five okay. in a row, but that's for the airline to say, actually, we know that our guys are going to lose maybe an hour, maybe two of sleep each night compared to what they'd normally get. Are we okay with them working five? Yeah. Maybe we'll do three, maybe we'll do four because actually – by the fifth day, we don't want to carry that risk. So it comes in kind of both sides. So obviously, you as the individual need to do what you can to get sleep. I mean, if people are out clubbing till three and then they're meant to be at work at five, uh, not a great thing. But if you get to work and realize you haven't had enough sleep to support the day, then that really difficult decision of holding your hand up to say, I'm sorry, guys, from a, like I'm not safe. I'm not fit to fly the day. Um, and the company should take that as great thank you very much you've made a safety related decision Um, you go home get your rest ideally we'll call you a taxi because if someone's not safe to fly they're definitely not safe to drive a car so (laughs) put them in a taxi put them on a train uh, get them home that person rests and then hopefully they're fit and well to come back the next day and, and carry on the pattern
1: and obviously, we're we talking, um, as you said, around sort of the high-risk industries, um, using air quite a lot. But this can equally apply to, I guess, factory work and kind of shift working and, and things like that. So this has a much deeper applicability um, than just the, you know, it's not a special thing in many ways. It's actually, we could get so much more out of our staff up and down the piece if we um, if we looked at this.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and so we primarily work in yeah safety critical industries as I said, but anywhere where you've got shift work, you're going to have problems with sleep. Um, even non-shift working environments. So um, there's a group at um, Washington State University um, who look at sleep and management. So people in offices.
0: Mm
2: and the lack of sleep and the amount of evidence they have on things like the ethics and the decision-making that managers make when they haven't slept enough and the link between short sleep and they call it cyber loafing so the days when you should be working on your computer but instead you're just reading the news or going on (laughs) whatever other fun websites people go on um, I I can't relate to that whatsoever (laughs) (laughs) yeah so you're in the workplace, you're technically present, yeah. but you're not doing anything. Yeah. Um, and all of this kind of comes back to sleep loss. So for any industry uh, any employer, any business, it's really relevant. Yeah. Um make sure people have, have had enough sleep and supporting them to do so.
1: So how do we then so if if you're you're an organization then you've you've determined that you've got to um... You've got to you fatigue your high risk industry. Um, what tools and techniques can you use? what should what should you be doing as I guess best practice to, um, um, to to help your employees manage their sleep better?
2: Yeah, so I think the first step is you've already identified that yeah they, they know that they need to do something. that's step one. Um, we know that prescriptive hours of work rules, so whether that is flight time limits for flight crew, whether that's the European working time directive for yeah. everyone else, um, hours of work for train crew, drivers, all of those things, um, they're not particularly effective no control of team, unfortunately. But it makes sense. It Those rules say European working time directive says you have to have 11 hours free of work between one working period in the next. Mm-hmm. If that 11 hours is between seven in the evening and six in the morning, it's, it's a pretty good time to sleep. But yeah. by the time someone's mm-hmm. driven home, spent some time with their family, had something to eat in the morning, got up, had a shower, driven back to work, then you're really cutting in if someone needs eight hours of sleep. Yeah. Most people are somewhere between seven and nine, but the middle of that is eight. So there's not much time left if that time is between seven in the morning and six in the evening, body clock says you're not going to get much sleep. So we need to go beyond these prescriptive hours of work rules to think about actually scientifically, when are people going to get enough sleep? How can we support that sleep and make sure that people, people are doing that. So to do that, we need data. Um, and that's the big thing that drives a fatigue risk management system or fatigue risk management approach is having the data to understand when our people are sleeping, when they're not sleeping, when they're having difficulties, where are the hot spots in our working pattern where we'd expect fatigue to be elevated. Why is fatigue elevated? Is it because it's just, it's three in the morning? Yeah, right? yeah. Okay. Fatigue's always going to be bad at three in the morning. <laughs> but three in the morning on the first night shift versus the second night shift versus the third night shift and so on. Yeah. They're not all going to look the same. So it's working out the differences. What are people doing at these times? Is it three in the morning doing a monitoring task? Okay. Do we need to put in something to help them with that? Because we know that people aren't very good at monitoring when they're fatigued. Yeah. Um, I think Chernobyl and Three Mile Island, so to... Um, nuclear incidents, to put them mildly. They both (laughs) happened at three, four, five, six in the morning. Yes. Long night shifts. Um, Obviously, there's other factors. There always is with fatigue-related accidents. Um, Usually, it's like the straw that breaks the camel's back. So, you've got design faults, you've got other things going on, you've got communication breakdown, but then you throw tired people into the mix. They just can't respond um, as well as they normally would. So... We need to think about the data, the evidence that we have, and collecting that from multiple different sources. So you might use a a software tool called a fatigue model, which you can put your schedules in, and at the other end it'll say, oh, you've probably got fatigue here, 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 and here. Yeah. Um, And that is due to the body clock it's due to people not being predicted to get enough sleep it's due to on this particular day you're going to probably have people being awake for over 20 hours um, that's going to be a problem so you can use these models to give you a kind of general average picture of what the problem might be if you have a planned working schedule so- if you don't work to a plan you can't use one of those
1: so if you so presumably that this this fatigue model is something that um you developed in house and you use that as a as a tool um as part of your consultancy or is it something you get from outside
2: It's a tool we use, but no we pay for one um okay. so there's there's a lot out there um they're generally available the equations are also available um okay. open source for but... That some people have published um, in order to kind of build your own, but they're all based on the called the three process model um, of sleep. So they take sleep and wakefulness. So generally, people can be awake for kind of eighteen hours or so before we start to get performance issues. Right. And then we sleep. It's like a fuel tank. The longer we wait for, the emptier our fuel tank gets. We sleep, we fill the fuel tank back up, and we're ready to go the next day. So these models combine the sleep-wake fuel tank with our body clock, which varies in alertness for 24 hours, um, peaking in the morning, big dip in the night uh, when normally we would be asleep. So it combines those with a third process, which is called sleep inertia, which I'm sure everyone has experienced that groggy feeling when you first wake up, particularly from deep sleep. And for a minute, you've got no idea where you are, who you are, what's going on. so that's the, the third process, which only affects us for about 30 minutes when we first wake up. But okay. if you're an on-call worker, if you are someone who can sleep at work um, and then might get called to come and do something, sleep inertia is really important for those guys. For everyone else, usually all we're doing in the first 30 minutes after we wake up is making a coffee. So <laughs> yes. we can generally manage that.
1: I was going to say that's very high on my list as long as I can get the, get get coffee done and not actually speak to anybody for a bit then um, then that works for me but, uh, so yeah. looked at this from a very personal perspective then um, I'm a, a bit of a gadget freak um, mm-hmm. that, that I like my gadgets is there is there ways that technology can help us with this is there because there's, there's wearable technologies out there on the market now that um, or apps on your phone that can apparently do this sleep tracking and I'm a bit of a data nerd as well that I love gathering as much data as possible but what is out there that is the, that can actually help us?
2: Yeah, so I find this wearable tech equally fascinating. I mean, I have a Fitbit, which I've had a Fitbit for oh, years. Mm. Um, my current one is mostly it's got a large enough screen so I can see it when I'm swimming because I'm terribly short-sighted. I can't see the clock in the swimming pool. like That's my main reason to purchase the current Fitbit. Yeah. Uh, but from the sleep side... Yeah. All of these devices. Uh, So there's Fitbits, there's Apple Watches. Um, One I was reading about yesterday is is called Whoop, which sounds very fun. That doesn't have a screen on it. It's just a wristband, and then it talks to an app on your phone. They're getting better. So probably if we'd had this conversation even four years ago, yes, they're collecting sleep data, but... It wasn't great. And the validation against um, the gold standard, which is polysomnography or PSG for short, um, which is where we attach electrodes to people's heads to read what's going on in their brains uh, to their jawline to get a reading from muscles and around your eyes to see what your eyes are doing.
1: That's going to look pretty.
2: That is the gold standard. (laughs) It's not very comfortable to wear (laughs) (laughs) if you're being studied, but we can pretty much 100% definitely say this person is asleep when they're really asleep, this person is awake when they're really awake, and what stage of sleep they're in, whether that's the deep sleep, whether that's light sleep, or whether it's REM sleep. So when most people do their dreaming, Um, we can tell that from electroding everyone up. The device is now. They're pretty good when it comes to saying you're asleep when you definitely are asleep. Okay. If you wake up during the night, they're not as good just because they're mostly based off movement. Some of them use your heart rate as well. So if you wake up in the night and you don't move, how is your watch going to know? Or the thing that's under your mattress or the phone that you put under your pillow or the, I think Google are about to release a thing that sits on the side of your bed and looks at you with radar or something. Whoa, uh, that's just I haven't looked into that too much just because I find it slightly creepy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, if you don't move, none of those things are going to really work out if you're awake or asleep or not. Um, and then the sleep staging, that's where they're not as good. So knowing if you're in deep sleep or light sleep or dreaming sleep, the data shows us from the studies that have been done to validate these tools, okay. um, which some have been through, some haven't. They're not quite there yet uh, compared to what we'd do properly with the PSG yeah. um, and wiring people up. But I think eventually they might get there. Yeah. But for now, if your Fitbit says you didn't get enough deep sleep, I wouldn't worry too much because it doesn't have a huge amount about your deep sleep
1: yet. yeah yeah so but if I'm gathering that sort of data what can I sort of reflectively do with it um, anything at all or is it just a case of me i can like I do make my little excel spreadsheet and 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 I'm happy with that um, but is there is there things I can reflectively be look, look look using that data for
2: I think one of the most useful things that we could all do with these devices is to think about um what time we're going to bed and what time we're waking up. So, one of the number one things that can help you get good sleep is to go to bed at the same time within kind of 30 minutes every single day and get up within 30 minutes, the same time okay. every single day. So, work day, non working day, holiday, whatever, you go to bed at this time, you wake up at this time and get up. So, a device like anything that tracks your sleep. Can help you with that. So you'll be able to see, you can set um, a sleep schedule in most of them. Yeah. And it'll say, yep, yeah, you're in bed on schedule. Oh, you're out a bit late last night, or you had a big line, or whatever. So you can see through time how well you keep your pattern um, of sleep. So I think that can be really good. Um, it also helps people get a, li- a little bit more awareness of maybe you've got quite a short sleep. So if you are only allowing yourself kind of six, six and a half hours of sleep every night, then it's something external that's saying, I'm not sleeping somewhere between seven and nine hours. Uh, Maybe I need to look at that in the same way that the step count says you only did 150 steps today. Yeah. yeah, maybe You need to do an extra lap uh, around the garden. Um, So from that kind of awareness perspective, I think they're great. It can go too far. Um, so there is um, a bit of research that's been published um, showing that people who wearing devices that gave them fake feedback so the watch said oh you didn't sleep very well last night the quality was low as before they got that feedback the person might say yeah I slept pretty well last night yeah. after they got given the feedback oh no it was a bad night's sleep the same thing but yeah. the watch says you didn't sleep very well so therefore do you think you didn't sleep very well um, so that can be a problem yeah. that we start to, just like with, I mean, so many areas, we start to trust the tech over how we actually feel. Um, the other one is if people get too focused on their sleep and too focused on chasing the numbers. Um, so my Fitbit says I should get more than 90% whatever their sleep score is, um, and I should be sleeping eight hours a night because. People should sleep for eight hours a night, all of those things. And we get really het up on that. We can start to put pressure on our sleep. And that's the worst thing we can do, kind of to be anxious about getting yeah, to sleep yeah. or trying to force sleep. Um, I mean, we've all been there. You've got an early morning <laughs> fight the next day, or you need to get up, or you absolutely can't sleep through your alarm, whatever it is. That's when sleep goes away so there's a oh, i can't remember his name but there's a, um, a psychologist from the early 1900s he said that um sleep is like a dove like it will basically sit there so long as you don't try and grab it <laughs> that's what it is like yeah. you just let it come you'll sleep fine if you try and force it sleep so, is much further away and yeah it's the problem i mean anyone who struggled to get to sleep will have been there the best thing we can do is just like, okay i'm not falling asleep get up go to a different room fold some socks do something really boring don't watch tv ideally um feel tired go back to bed
1: so is there a risk here with the technology then of so we we now start to see with wearable technology and um say like health insurance companies monitoring how, how much you've gone to the gym and things like that is there a risk of us getting into that bit where uh, we start legislating for people who have to get sleep, pilots, health and safety workers, whatever, um, having to prove that they've got enough sleep, do you think? Or do you think we are still grown up enough to recognise that um, we've got to give people the right conditions?
2: Oh, that's a really good question. Um, There was a review published on this that basically was making that discussion um, earlier this year by uh, Drew Dawson and his colleagues down in um, Australia. And uh, I think for a while, the technology is not going to be good enough um, for us to say your devices, you didn't sleep well enough. But I think they will get there. And then at that point, it's going to come down to, like with all these things, civil liberties and pri- uh, privacy versus yeah. um, the other elements so there's already a expectation and a responsibility on anyone who does say critical work to say I'm not safe to work today, whatever the reason is, it might be sleep it might be they're not feeling well yeah. it might be psychologically they're not fit to work or it might be drugs and alcohol so that requirement is already there um, drivers of cars have been prosecuted for falling asleep at the wheel, um, so legally there's already that responsibility. But yeah, whether we start to use tech to prove it, yeah, I think <laughs> it would be fascinating. But yeah, I don't think we're there yet, and I think it might be a bit scary if that does come along. Yeah, um, uh, so
1: I guess in many ways it's a it's a, a watch this space. I'd like I'd like to think that um, that we'd all be very grown up about it and, mm. and recognize that. What, what we have as human characteristics but um at some point it'll get tested won't it somebody will yeah. somebody will try and push the boundary and it's it's again it's the nature of the way that these things work i guess that that we'll then find out what people truly think and how people truly feel so yeah and um,
2: yeah we shall see watch this space
1: cool <laughs> sarah this has been an absolutely fascinating insight i guess i'm i'm everybody should be able to relate to this i guess because we all sleep or at least most of us mm-hmm. do um and so just Perfect. to hear, just to hear your um your advice on general sleep and and, and that um setting a schedule and things like that is, is really good but it's also really interesting to see how um how that gets put into into i guess into a company ethos as well so um that's been absolutely fascinating thank you ever so much for your time
2: thank you it's been yeah great to talk to you
0: Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us at www.barrykirby.co.uk and on Twitter at B-A-Z underscore K. See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense.